Hello, and welcome to The Regrettable Century. I'm Chris, and today we have a special discussion with Adam from Red Library. We read and discussed Splendor, Misery, and Possibilities by Darko Suvine. This is a book about one of my favorite subjects, Socialist Yugoslavia, and this is an incredibly in-depth look at it that we took several months to dig through. So, after all the painstaking preparation, we have an episode done in the Red Library style. So without any further ado, please enjoy the episode. What's up, comrades? Welcome to this week's episode of Red Library. We are here to chew bubblegum and talk about socialist Yugoslavia. And unfortunately, we're all out of bubblegum. I've called in reinforcements. My excellent comrades from the Regrettable Century are back in the library to help me tackle this incredibly complex and daunting task. So I will let them introduce themselves, share their names, their... I don't know. What else do y'all want to share? I'll just... Just do your thing. Just go. Just go. Hi, I'm Chris. I'm on the Regrettable Century, and that's all I would like to share right now. I'm Kevin. I'm also on the Regrettable Century. And I'm Jason, and I am also on the Regrettable Century. And to be honest, that's more than I had wanted to share. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, strong, silent types, all of us. That's right. <laughs> well, it's a goddamn yeah, vault. Yeah. This book, man. It, look, it's very pretty. It's got bright colors on it. You know, it's only about 400 pages long. So you're like, you know, this looks like a nice afternoon read. I'll. Maybe I'll take it to the beach with me and relax and read it. And then you open it up and you try to read the introduction and you're just like, what the fuck did I get myself into? And then you <laughs> find that there are many pages within the pages. <laughs> yes, there yeah. are many, and many pages within the pages within those pages. That's... And you have tied yourself, you've obligated yourself to read it by yeah. doing a collaboration <laughs> with another podcast. That's true. We all agreed to, to this. counting on you. <laughs> yeah, I think in hindsight, after us all reading this book, we can look back and say it was a fucking terrible decision that we all made, but we're here. We're committed, so we can't go back now. I learned a hell of a lot about uh, a subject that I, in retrospect, found incredibly fascinating. So I can't, I can't say I regret it all the way down, you know? No, no, yeah. it's a great book, but it was really hard to read. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely a book that if I was reading it on my own, I would have sat down for another time. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm actually really glad to be disciplined by the group here. Yeah, because... absolutely. I would never finish. I would have never read it outside of the context of a, a, a collective reading group of some sort that like forces you to get through it. Yeah, you were all subjected to the iron will of our podcast collaboration. <laughs> the, yeah. Lenin, the Leninist discipline of our yeah. podcast collaboration. It's really good because it really, I mean, we'll get into it, but I yeah. think it helps I think it will help inform a lot of the way that I think a lot of us are thinking about things mm-hmm. in a much bigger bigger setting and bigger context than this book is even about. Yeah, I agree. Yes. And just to let everyone know what we're reading today, we're doing Splendor, Misery, and Possibilities, An X-Ray of Socialist Yugoslavia by Darko Suvin. It's what we're here to do. It's uh, part of the Historical Materialism series published by Haymarket in 2015. So I don't, have y'all ever read any, anything else from the Haymarket Historical Materialist series? Oh yeah. Oh, oh yeah. So good. We're from the ISO. Uh, That's true. Yes. <laughs> How did I forget? For ISO and that was the Haymarket uh, books was the publishing wing of that organization. So uh, we definitely read uh, other books from the, from, from that. Yeah. Yeah. We were, um, we were MLMs. Uh, multi-level marketing. <laughs> for, uh, for Haymarket books. 
Well, so like I'm looking at my bookshelf right now, and just uh, just a very cursory glance, um, I can see the Gramscian moment. I can see following Marx's Capital mm-hmm. and several other similar books in the series, the historical materialism series, all of which are books that, uh, again, were hard to read all the way through. And I, unlike this one, I wasn't disciplined by any group to read them. Except for um, Western Marxism in the Soviet Union by Marcel van der Linden, which I actually would recommend to everybody. Yeah, I actually wanted to dig into that one at some mm. future date, but you know that is neither here nor there. Or no, definitely there. the the organization that the publisher w- used to be uh, tied to is uh, notwithstanding it, it, it's absolutely a, a a very good publishing house that, mm-hmm. that puts out a, a a tremendous amount of really good material. I mean, obviously, like any anything, not everything that it puts out is like top tier or whatever. No. But uh, but there's a lot of stuff <laughs> that wouldn't get published other- otherwise. That uh, yeah. That Haymarket puts out. That's actually really good stuff. You I'm know glad what? they survived the well-deserved and long-overdue collapse of the ISO. Mm-hmm. I was going to suggest this at some point. I really would love for all of us to do uh, another book from the series by David McNally called Monsters of the Market. Have you yes. all read that one? Oh, yeah. I don't know if we all did, but I read it for our episode on Gothic Marxism. Oh, well, shit. Okay, never mind. Well, anyway. No, no, no. <laughs> but we didn't like we didn't really dig into it like mm-hmm. that. So I'm definitely down to, to revisit that one. Absolutely. Speaking of, speaking of collaborating and uh, digging into things, we're kind of thinking about making this just a permanent thing that we're going to do all the time from now on. Yeah, that's and right. By th- so I know I've teased this a little bit on Red Library over the last month that we've had a big announcement coming up. Well, we figured this was as good of a time and place to do it. It's fitting considering that, yeah, our work together, our shows collaborating um, not only with Red Library and Regrettable Century, but also with From 78. We're going full Voltron action, and we're going to combine into one single entity. That will be <laughs> the Lost Horizons Network, which will be launching. Um, this is sort of the announcement, but we're going to have a lot of cool stuff coming up. So do you all want to share a little bit of um, what listeners can expect from that? Uh, hopefully not not as much anime, but... <laughs> Get the <laughs> fuck Voltron. off my show, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that, we'll leave the anime to Red Library. But um, so we're, um, we're going to have a network, which will include a network website, which will have links to things that we think are important and maybe even blog postings. We don't really know yet. And we're going to be doing a lot more appearances on each other's shows. In fact, I'm talking with From78 right now about going on From78 and doing that thing, which I think will be fun. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, we are also going to be doing a semi-regular collaboration with everybody from all the podcasts where we get together on a separate feed that will be, it'll be a, a separate podcast from all of ours. It'll just be a network feed where we comment on things that we wouldn't necessarily talk about on our own shows. So maybe current events, maybe movies, books that, you know, we wouldn't talk about on our own shows. I don't know. It's, it, it's, it's a very open format at this point, and we'll, we'll get more into that in the future. I think another thing that I mean, we've talked about doing is getting together to just talk freely in a way in which might not necessarily make the best regular podcast episode, but is a more kind of open discussion space, salon type. Right. I really like that idea. Yeah, me too. And I think that some of the discussions we've had already is for listeners to get an idea of kind of what the spirit of this new network is going to be is that I think our shows all share a kind of similar spirit, a desire to reinvigorate or recapture that warm strain, that warm current in Marxism and try to carve out some new perspectives, some new ways of thinking about 
political theoretical issues of the day. And, you know, I think to me, this is a very, like, it's a very conscious effort to try to create something new or to offer something new, I think, in a, you know, general political landscape, which has a, a dearth of such things. Uh, I don't know how good it will be, but uh, I'm definitely I mean, it's going to be shit. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying it's going to be good. I'm just saying it might be new, but it's going to be garbage, of course. <laughs> yeah, it's going to suck. <laughs> so listen to us. <laughs> I'm telling you now, I'm going to fuck this up. <laughs> No, but I mean, well, I don't uh, know about y'all's contributions, but I'm going to be amazing. Yeah. <laughs> well, somebody has to be. Probably the guiding principle that unites all three of our shows is a uh, dedication to a dialectical pessimism. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I think that will be underscored in our collaborations with each other from this point forward. Yeah. So I guess everyone keep your eyes and ears peeled for the collaborative episode network feed the blog posts and everything else and i'm sure we'll be posting links and sharing that throughout our our show feeds as as we get that stuff up and running did we tell everybody what it was called yet i think i said lost horizons network yeah it lost horizons network that's what it's called (laughs) (laughs) i don't know maybe you did i'll we'll find out and take this out and post I'll just, I'll like input like that new like voice generator thing where it'll be Zizek or like Jordan Peterson just saying the name of the network and I'll just Lost randomly Horizons put that. <laughs> Speaking of Lost Horizons, guys. Uh, yeah. Splendor, Misery, and Possibilities. Yeah. yeah. You guys want to gaze at the Lost Horizon of the, the glorious Yugoslav social experiment? It's what we're here to do. So I guess, you know, yeah. no time to waste. Well, where do you all want to start at this thing. So I know that we're focusing on the Savine book as a core text, but we also did a little bit of extra reading from a book that he uh, quotes pretty extensively. It's a historical work on the situation in Yugoslavia. It's basically called... It's called uh, the Yugoslav Experiment. Yeah. And Chris, do you have the years there? It's like 1948 to 1972 or something like that. 1948 to 74. You were right. Damn it. I think that's what you said. We looked at that work to give us a little, little bit more of a historical context, because I think Suvin's book touches on that, but he's also very clear that he's not necessarily going to do a huge retrospective history. I mean, his, his work of history, I think, is much more dialectical, much more theoretical and imaginative than just reading a straight history book. So it was kind of a nice he, He's not interesting in help, interested in helping you understand it at all. <laughs> this is not his goal. <laughs> this book is written for Yugoslavs, I think. <laughs> well, it strikes me as it was a very personal book for him to write. Oh, it seemed like he was really yeah. grappling with, you know, his own life experience and how to make sense of all that through this, you know, just very brilliant kind of circular dialectical kind of logic that he has that's also very informed by science fiction of all things which i really love and also hate about reading this book so i mean i think that the thing that's important for understanding yugoslavia is to understand why a group of people that speak almost nearly identical languages have such drastically different cultures or not even drastically different cultures, just identities. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, I mean, you've got one section of the Southern Slavic peoples, which is what Yugoslav means, was conquered and ruled by the Ottoman Empire, which allowed for the existence of the uh, Eastern Orthodox strain of Christianity underneath its rule. And then one section, which was conquered by the Holy Roman Empire, and which was very, very much so Catholic. So the sections in the north, such as Croatia and Slovenia, they read the Latin alphabet and are Catholic. And the other ones, like such as Serbia, will have a, use the Cyrillic alphabet and be Eastern Orthodox. And the further south you go, the more Muslim it becomes. So you've got large Albanian populations in Kosovo and just 
an intermixture of all of these different things in all in all the different places, but still strong identities based around who they were conquered by in each region. So the Serbians and the Croatians are the ones that everyone knows the most about. Those would be the two that have the, the biggest and most nationalistic identities. They're the biggest countries that have probably the strongest national identities people know about bosnia that's but true really but really in a very abstract way they yeah. know about bosnia as like synonymous with like a tragedy rather than like as a place mm-hmm. right people you know it's yeah. more like an event in people's minds i was first introduced to it when i was um 18 whenever i worked at a pizza hut on the south side of fort worth texas where there was a group of bosnian uh, immigrants who were working there who had fled uh, the genocide. They were all Muslim. And I remember having, I had never heard of this pl- part of the world. I'd never thought about anything outside of, you know, my own immediate periphery before, you know. But I, I remember catching little bits and pieces of things that they would talk about uh, from back in their home country. And I rem- also remember one time talking about uh, one thing that really blew me away uh, at the time uh, when I, I was like, I was saying to one of them, come on, Hassan, uh, time is money. Got to get moving. And he turned around and he said to me, no. For a rich man, time is money. But for working men, what's the difference? Fuck, dude. Yeah, you got Damn, fucking dog. owned by Hassan. Yeah. Shit. <laughs> yeah, I'd like us to start upholding Hassan's thought. I know. <laughs> you know, we were just talking about who is the patron saint of podcasts before we started this. And I think that the patron saint of our new Lost Horizons network will be Hassan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I wanted to ask y'all just kind of in the standard Red Library format. So we've talked a little bit about this book and a little bit of the background. I was curious what y'all thought about the relevance or why are we doing this book of all books? And I I know I have some ideas and I put some things down in my notes, but I was curious what y'all thought about just sort of what's our inspiration to focus on this particular event, historical situation, you know, this work, this book in particular. Well, I just think that the Yugoslav experiment is one that denies clean categorization. And I think that that's something that we need to grapple with. Mm-hmm. I think as, as uh, Marxists, especially Trotskyists and um, other Leninist strains, we have the tendency to try to put things in neat little boxes and understanding everything very systematically, even if it doesn't lend itself to that systemization. And I think that Yugoslavia, uh, the more I read about it and the more, I, the more I come to understand it, I feel like it just refuses to fit into any of the categories that, that I thought it should have fit in previously, such as in the ISO, we're like, we were taught Yugoslavia, oh, they were, they were Stalinists. They weren't real socialists. Real socialism means rule by workers' councils. They didn't have that, which fucking turns out they did. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but they were not real workers' councils because they weren't done by the uh, self-emancipation of the proletariat. It was through a guerrilla war by mostly peasants, so that doesn't count. And mm-hmm. uh, Anyway, so to me, it makes sense to study things that defy categorization. And Yugoslavia is a perfect example of that. Transition is an important thing for us to understand. Yeah, actually on that, Frederick Jameson writes in the introduction of the book that it's hard to imagine a socialist movement today that's completely free of the influences of the 20th century. And as much as I think we fight that sometimes, I think it's still true. And so fully understanding the 20th century probably matters a lot in that regard. And so to to look at the broad sweep of historical experience across the world and paint it all with the same brush as being basically like Russia, but you know, where they spoke different languages is really to, I think, handicap the movement of the future. So it's not just of historical interest that we look at something like the the experience of socialist Yugoslavia. 
it's also because presumably we'll get a shot and you know before the planet is doomed for for good and the species is over to uh do what we call build socialism and uh, I think we ought to have the fullest understanding of what that has looked like in the past. Yeah, exactly. It's a lot like, I think, uh, the the reason for reading the last book that we did this collaboration on, which was the Dialectic of Defeat, which uh, sets out in the introduction the framework of, well, just because you know we sort of take for granted that these ideas lost and these ideas won, therefore these ideas were the ones, the ones that won are the ideas that we need to take seriously and we can disregard the other ideas. And uh, he called that whole like framework in into question and says well especially now that we've seen the collapse of the soviet union and uh, we still want to identify with the communist horizon then we need to reassess what it is that we call winning versus what it is we want to consider a, like uh, a valuable idea to consider to to take into account and yugoslavia more is much more concrete than uh, the dialectic of defeat which is just talking about just analyzing the theoretical investigations of various marxists uh, who dissident marxists throughout western marxism you looking at yugoslavia is looking at a dissident praxis of Marxism. It is a, uh, a an implementation or an attempt at an implementation of Marxist theory that radically dissented from the Soviet Union's hegemony, so much so that it completely defected from the the Soviet Union's political hegemony and was the founding the founding nation of the non-aligned movement that brought together a bunch of third world developing countries uh, into a uh, separate sphere uh, trying to create its own separate sphere of influence still exists today but I imagine but it's aligned now yeah now it's aligned (laughs) yeah Yeah, exactly but I mean well I mean we'll get into this more but I mean that's maybe one of the things that you can uh, look at in this concrete experiment that Yugoslavia had is uh, it was its ties to a, a larger economic sphere that led to its ultimate uh, demise that in an aligned world you cannot be non-aligned especially as a peripheral nation so i had a another thought i wanted to append to this and it's also from the introduction of the book because in my in my mind one of the the major unresolved theoretical questions bequeathed to us by the 20th century is the nature of the transition from the rule of capital mm-hmm. uh, of of capitalist property relations to social property relations that we have historically known as communism or socialism and at some point along the way we came to adopt a notion of socialism as a society of a of a form of property relations that exists in between these other two historic modes of production so we actually have two competing visions for what it is we're trying to build right and the author early on you know defines socialism and according to the way he his reading of marx tells him is this is the transitional period an attempt to do away with the exploitation of people not something which can be built which is to say it is the liminal space between two modes of production. And that raises all sorts of really important questions about whether or not there can be socialist jurisprudence. Mm -hmm. Is there the temporary dictatorship of the proletariat and a socialist society that exists generations into the future until some distant horizon? The contrast between those two visions of what it is that are the immediate demands of the movement today I think not only is that not resolved, I don't even think it's consciously posed Mm -hmm. and it's to our detriment. And so studying Yugoslavia, I think, is a study in the the concept of transition. Just to jump in on that. Yes, I think to me, that's what I came away with is that, you know, on Red Library, I know that we've brought this up a lot, that the question of transition is still a fundamental one. And it is one that is very rarely even consciously engaged with, let alone posed and grappled with. 
So to me, this book, I think, was one of the best examples I've ever seen of these real practical questions and and a sort of crucible of where you actually get to see how they play out in a really dense, historically grounded way. You know, I I was actually just thinking about something that y'all were saying. I think you were saying this too, Jason, on your episode with Varn about how very little we still understand on the left of actually what happened in the 20th century. And to me, this book is a great example of that. Well, it's much more interesting and complex than that, comrade. And I think that this book (laughs) is like a really good example of, yes, like these questions that we're going to tackle in this book are the question of the transition in a very concrete way and the real thorny problems that come up with that. But also, I think the role of the party shifting from a military command structure to an educational sort of organ of the people, the relationship between democratizing the economy with workers' councils and then actually controlling production and profits and what actually does that look like. And then there was one other thing that really struck me about this book, and I know we're going to talk a lot about it, but it basically is sort of this problem of the the emergence of a bureaucratic party structure, or these new class distinctions that sort of arise as you're trying to implement this really revolutionary socialist program. And it doesn't get you out of those problems. In some ways, kind of in the old school malice sense, it's that, you know, the class struggle still continues. It now just sort of shifts dialectically into a new form, but it's still there. And to me, this is a really great example of the things that I think absolutely we as people on the left, if we get the chance to build socialism, we better like have very, very clear ideas of what's happened before, because these problems, I feel like are going to be just reemerge in new ways. Yeah. Thank you for coming to my <laughs> TED talk. <laughs> All right. That's a wrap, right? <laughs> that's it. Episode done. That's it. All right. It's a mini episode. We did it. <laughs> Gettable Century out. <laughs> I guess we probably just let down all of our listeners, but you know what? It's a free episode, so whatever. <laughs> they're, they're getting yeah, right. whatever we put out. We're gonna, uh, this is where we're going to cut off. And, uh, <laughs> so we're going to cut off in the rest of this conversation. The other two and a half hours of this conversation <laughs> are going to be on the Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to 2020 and our new business model with the Lost Horizons Network. <laughs> Lost Subscribers Network. Ooh. <laughs> oh, ouch. Damn. Anyway. Um, all right. Yeah. So oh. let me ask, do y'all want to talk about the section I put together on the, the Russ and Al stuff on some more historical trajectory? Chris, I know you just sort of touched on this. I, I talked about how the distinct nationalities emerged out of a group of people that all settled next to each other and spoke the same language originally. And then, you know, in the modern era, you have an attempt to form a country, which was the Kingdom of Yugoslavia. It was a sort of peripheral nation in Europe, uh, not very industrialized, and had just emerged from centuries of domination by other empires and was at the precipice of coming into its own as a nation when it was totally smashed by the Nazi invasion mm-hmm. in, uh, in World War II. And the thing that happens in World War II that is super important, that's that's all I want to get us up to, is the existence of the Yugoslav uh, partisan movement, which was led by Marshal Josip Tito. And he was appointed by the Comintern to be the head of the Yugoslav Communist Party. And he led them in their heroic struggle against fascism through the entirety of World War II. And is actually outside of, I think, Slovakia, the only country to throw the Nazis out on their own. I think Slovakia, there was a national uprising in Czechoslovakia. And the Slovakians were able to push the Nazis back until the Red Army showed up to help them out. But that is where the beginning of the Yugoslav socialist system of government begins is in the self-organization of the partisan groups in fighting the Nazis. And I think that Tito consciously, mentally breaks with Stalin, I think, before World War II even happens. 
and then formally breaks with Stalin after World War II. Yeah, I was going to say, I kind of think of the the partisan movement as the embryonic form. And it's it's funny, it's, it's kind of directly said that the whole nature of, of Yugoslav communism as a movement really does lay all the groundwork for the experience of the League of Communists in power and the and the construction of the state. The inherent autonomy and decentralization that is necessary to be able to run an effective guerrilla war, that the, the ties that bind the, the individual partisan detachments to the party center are more uh, about fealty and about mm-hmm. necessity in terms of like uh, political lineage and, and direct connection in a shared vision rather than a direct command structure. So it's it's very different than the party structure that comes into into formation, you know, that comes out from underground in places where the the resistance wasn't a partisan movement. And I think that that's fascinating for a lot of reasons because it, I think it just really shows how much our day-to-day experience in the here and now uh, informs the future only contains what we put in it is the old slogan. So, you know, we talk a lot about like we can't prefigure the future and like it's X question is always relegated to after the revolution. And one of the earliest lessons of Yugoslavia is that actually the, the revolution is defined and the experience after the revolution is defined by the means by which you try to attain it in the first place. Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. One of the things I wanted to put in there, too, before I moved on from the, the prehistory of Yugoslavia, of socialist Yugoslavia, is that the struggle against the Nazis in World War II wasn't just a struggle for national liberation. It was also a struggle against the collaborators, the Ustasha. Who yeah. were the, the fascist collaborators who um, the SS thought were too vicious when it came to exterminating Jews. They did it in an incredibly bloodthirsty and less systematic way than the SS did. So the SS didn't like it very much. And the other, the Chetnik partisans who were opposing both the, both the, the fascists and the uh, communist partisans. And they were royalists. So... When the, the communist partisans would liberate a zone, they would have to fight the fascists and the royalists. And then in distinction to the zones liberated by the royalists, they would set up an egalitarian system that was democratically controlled mm-hmm. by the people that lived there. And they gained an incredible amount of legitimacy by doing that. They would let the people that lived in these areas have a say over what was going on in these areas, and they would help provide for their needs. Whereas the monarchists would do what monarchists do and dictate to the population. So there was a struggle going on to throw out the monarchy and usher in a more egalitarian system that was going on simultaneous to the struggle against the fascist invaders and collaborators. You can compare that to the mentality and actions of the French resistance dominated almost co-equal by the Gaullists and the communists and the experience immediately after liberation as well. When the social question is not posed by the existence of a communist-dominated resistance movement, in the, in direct contrast to the way the social question is posed by the virtue of an, the existence of a communist-dominated partisan movement in Yugoslavia. And another, by, another historical example of that is the debates about the Spanish Republican movement, mm-hmm. you know, uh, 10 years earlier, that like it actually matters, you know, the content that you put into the movement and what, what it's able to generate. I think just a couple of other quick things I wanted to add in as well in terms of maybe economic uh, factors about these longer historical trends and how this will play out through World War II and then onward into the, the future of socialist Yugoslavia that we're going to focus on. So Chris, you were talking about this sort of divide between the Northwest region, Slovenia and Croatia, and the, the sort of Southeastern region, which was Serbia and Belgrade. And so there was one interesting thing in the Rusinau book where he says that 
the Northwest section actually had a higher living standard and economic power, but the Southeastern region held sort of larger superiority of numbers and sort of led the role in founding of the new state of Yugoslavia. And so they had more political power. So I thought that was an interesting way to see that there's this tension that's there from this larger uh, historical trend of which empire tended to dominate and invade each area that will eventually lead to these sort of differences in who has more economic force, who has more political force, and how socialist Yugoslavia is going to develop through, uh, through the period that we're going to touch on as well. One of the things that the dominance of the communist partisans in Yugoslavia helped to do was secure Yugoslavia as an independent country that was free from Western domination and inadvertently from Soviet domination. Mm -hmm. Because the British were pushing very hard for Yugoslavia to, um, at the Yalta conference, for Yugoslavia to fall under the sphere of Western control, the Western sphere of influence, uh, much in the way that, that Greece did. Stalin acquiesced to Greece, even though Greece was poised to go communist after World War II, and then um, abandoned them to the right-wing dictatorship that was propped up by the British afterwards. And they didn't get to do that in Yugoslavia because the British acquiesced to the demands of the Yugoslav people to allow the uh, establishment of the socialist government. And that was actually one of the tensions between the Soviet Union and Yugoslavia as well was the support of the Italian partisans fighting against fascism as well. And that also was one of the things that too, I mean, it wasn't a like the only factor by any means, but definitely was a contributing factor to the sort of tensions that were going to grow and then eventually explode in 1948 with the official break with Stalin. I was actually wanting us to maybe touch on this for a second because prior to reading this book, the actual break with Tito and Stalin was something that I knew very little about, like the specifics mm-hmm. of it. But this book and the one by uh, Rusinow, I think, were some of the most just fascinating things of actually seeing the tensions and, and the historical developments and how they played out. So how much did you all know about the the sort of nitty gritty details of the split prior to us doing this episode? I knew absolutely nothing. But I mean, history is Chris and, and Jason's forte. I actually, there's a book that's probably everybody um, who's interested in the subject ought to consider reading. It's just not long, but it's Milo Vandilas's Conversations with Stalin. And, and it's a, just a, his reminiscences of a series of meetings between the Yugoslav communist leadership and the Soviet communist leadership, where he actually does get into really granular detail about the tensions and the and the split between them. Um, and I had read that long before I think I could fully appreciate what it was I was reading. But like one of the things he remembers very vividly is that the Russian communist leaders would stay up really late at night drinking excessively and writing policy. And all of the Yugoslav communists were like horrified at the idea that the fate of millions of people could be decided not just by so few people, but so few people who were like sleep deprived and drunk out of their minds. And he says that we knew early on that we were going to have to go a different path. We just mm. didn't know how profound of a, of a different path we would end up taking, at least according to his memory, which maybe is a revisionist history. I don't know. But he he just kind of describes it as like a very long awakening to that reality that starts with just differences in in method. Well, one of the the things that I I found really compelling about the framing of this book is uh, the way he sets out the, the three singularities of mm. the social Feder- federated republic of Yugoslavia. Right, was the first one being its independence from the USSR, but it. It's, he specifically points 
to, I think, Jason, what you were saying, uh, what you pointed to earlier. He doesn't just talk about, uh, well, Tito didn't agree with uh, Stalin, so therefore that, you know, the entirety of the the nation and the masses all went in a totally different direction. He, he very pointedly takes, doesn't look at it through a sort of great man theory of history where he's looking at the, the people at the upper echelons. The, I, th- I think he lays out material context, the material conditions that the leaders like Tito and Stalin were acting and that allowed them to uh, allowed Tito to disagree with and go in a separate direction from Stalin, which is exactly that. Unlike any of the other European nations that were under the the sphere of influence of the USSR, the Yugoslavia came under communist governance through its own independent revolution, its own workers' revolution, its own national liberation movement. And so the the rule of the Communist Party or the the social basis of the hegemony of you know of it being a communist state was a popular bottom up workers revolution that wasn't dependent on imposition from you know a foreign power wasn't dependent on there being tanks implementing it from uh, from the USSR it was in, uh, entirely independent from that from from foreign domination right so that allowed uh, Yugoslavia to be able to be poised so that it could go in a different direction so, so that Tito could disagree with Stalin and go in a different direction because he had an independent popular base that allowed mm-hmm. him to do so yeah, I think the relationship between the Communist Party in Yugoslavia and the role of the partisan resistance in in my readings of not only Suvin's book, but also Rusinow's book was sort of this generative place of legitimacy and sort of momentum <clears throat> and confidence that we could actually do this on our own. So a couple of the other uh, reasons for the, the official break in 1948 that I just want to touch on that I think you sort of alluded to, Kevin, were that one of the things that the Communist Party of Yugoslavia was accused of was greatly exaggerating the role of the party in liberation and establishing a new regime. And I guess there were there was this instance where the Red Army did rescue the partisans that I think it was Drivar. But the idea of sort of how autonomous, how emancipatory were they by themselves without outside influence seemed to be one of the the issues of debate. But there's this great line that I think is whenever they were leading up to the break and there was Tito like basically feigned being sick so he didn't have to go attend like a party congress of the Soviet Union. And I think he had sent Dimitrov to basically attend in his place. And there's this line where Stalin basically says, your trouble is not errors, but that you are taking a line different from ours. And then there's also some writings in some of Stalin's letters where he basically starts to compare Tito and Trotsky. And then basically Stalin and Molotov reject any offer from Yugoslavia to basically try to resolve the issue outside of the common form. And they basically just shut that down and said, no, you have to come and basically resolve this with us in person. And those were just some interesting historical details of kind of the the nuts and bolts of what actually led up to the break. But I think it does go all back to this tension of the fact that they did have this very unique position because of the partisan resistance and leading that and how that did give them this, I think, jumping off place that very few other places really did. So the other country that had a large partisan resistance, as I mentioned previously, was Czechoslovakia. Mm -hmm. And they came under the Soviet sphere of influence in 1948, when after the period from 1945 to 1948, there was a a long process that ended up in an actual revolution where, you know, the workers went out on strike um, and demanded that the Communist Party take control, full control of the government out of 
the hands of the National Front government, which included two other socialist parties. And then they aligned themselves formally with the Soviet Union. Up to that point, they were sort of like a contested area that was, uh, they had allowed free elections and they were there was still free movement between the West and Czechoslovakia. And they didn't have the, they, they weren't allowed the same freedom, just I think by virtue of their the ease of access by, from the Soviet Union and Poland and East Germany. And they didn't have the will because they didn't have their, their state formed solely out of the, the partisan. It was, it was a mixture of Soviet liberation and partisan uprising that led to the, the liberation of Czechoslovakia. But when they did try to exercise a bit of autonomy in 1968, they were crushed by an invasion of the Warsaw Pact. So I think you can look at the Yugoslav experiment and see that it was largely a popular uprising that led to the takeover by the communists, as opposed to Czechoslovakia, which was a combined liberation and then later subjugation. I don't know if that actually makes a whole lot of sense now. I think it does. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. Well, I just wanted to kind of share a quick quote, because one of the things that I really like about the structure of the book and what Suvin does a lot is he has a ton of quotes from, I think, sort of his spiritual influences on his approach to science fiction, to literary criticism, and to historical study. And I know we both have mentioned Ernst Bloch a bit on our shows, but I wanted to just read this quick quote, and then maybe we can start digging through the huge, daunting tome that is this work. But he had this really great line where he says, "...the knowledge of what is still future, not taken to its end in the past, is necessarily remembrance." namely of the one that is lacking and needful. And so I thought that was just a really beautiful line and kind of encapsulates, you know, not only the book, but I feel like a lot of the stuff that we both do on our shows and what the network is going to be about too. So I thought that might just be a fitting opening salvo yeah. on the, the book itself. Absolutely. Well, I just had a, a little, one more final kind of parting thought from the World War II era, you know, liberation war period of the prehistory. And it's kind of a, it's a sort of a lesson in, and what we call the role of the individual in history. And it's, I just think it's an important thing that people should walk away with is that uh, there is this massive bombing campaign. I forget the exact details, but it's like the German high command figured out where Tito was and they directed an enormous amount of resources to trying to take out Tito in a way that's similar to the way that modern militaries will bomb a whole village to take out a single insurgent leader or whatever. And uh, if not for this one like slight change, all of history might've gone differently. And that's that... When uh, Tito jumped for cover, his dog Rex jumped on top of him. And so shrapnel that only wounded Tito, uh, it, it, the shrapnel from the bombs only wounded Tito because it actually went through his dog first. So one of history's goodest boys saved the leader of the revolution and basically made it possible for that decisive confrontation with Stalin. Who knows how the secondary leadership might have dealt with those same circumstances? Comrade Rex. Yeah. Presente. <laughs> We honor you. We honor you, comrades. <laughs> wow. Yeah, the, the just wild contingency of history. We were just talking about this with our episode on, I believe it was on Nicaragua that we did, and just how an earthquake will fundamentally shift the global perspective on, you know, a particular authoritarian government. So that, that is a really fascinating detail and just how these small details, if one little thing changed... You know, who knows what would have played out. My historiography class that I took in grad school, one of the books we had to read was uh, about the contingency of history. And it was supposed to be a refutation of Marxist historiography. Like, see, Marxism is bullshit because contingency plays a role in history. Someone didn't and fucking I, read I argued Marx. pretty hard against that in class. <laughs> and I think that's part of the reason why they didn't renew my funding. But, you know... <laughs> 
in case anybody yeah. wants to see that's tito and rex oh i'll post damn. a pic in the show notes for sure yeah ironic that that's a german shepherd that saved them <laughs> from german bombs like the class is a much more important unifying feature of a person's social identity than his race that was a proletarian shepherd not that's right shepherd. <laughs> <laughs> an internationalist proletarian shepherd Yes. I wanted to come back to <laughs> Fuck yeah. Hell yeah. We're fucking knee deep in the episode now. <laughs> so let's do this shit. Let's do it. Forty five minutes and now we're ready. Yeah. Kevin, I wanted to come back. You mentioned the singularities and I thought, you know, we had talked before we started recording about how key the the first chapter or two and the last chapter are in this book. But I wanted us to maybe talk a little bit about Savine's unique approach to this and the idea of looking at the singularities in the history of Yugoslavia as a way to understand what happened. This is not a fair thing to ask any of you to do, but who wants to talk about what what Savine means by singularities? I think he's talking about the three sort of the legs of a chair that hold it up that are unique identifying features. Features uh, about the SFRY, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's what he's talking about with the singularities. I think that's right. right. I mean, I can uh, also say in brief what the three singularities were. The first one was it came to power. The SFRY came into existence through a national liberation revolution uh, rather than through foreign imposition. Uh, that's one of its singularities, which gives it a character of independence. Second was the uh, prevalence of workers' self-management um, as a feature of its self-defined socialism. And then the third singularity was the devolution from centralism to decentralized uh, centralized state to decentralized centralized republics Mm -hmm. and he he doesn't uh say that all of these uh all three of these uh, singularities are virtues Uh, in fact i think he he clearly leans on the third singularity as being a key element of its uh, downfall but right he kind of identifies it as one of the the contradiction that that its resolution is the undoing of the project itself Mm -hmm. as distinct from the other two which are driving mechanisms that that's the one that that is a break. He talks about the uh, basically the seeds of the dissolution of the Yugoslav state and its descent into um, regional nationalism being held in decentralization, but not being a direct result of decentralization. So I have a note. This is fusing the horizons of democracy and socialism and the struggleation, the struggleation, <laughs> the, the struggle, the struggle for the liberation of real. the people as the struggle for the liberation of the people as as a first and founding singularity. But I think it's it's that's the same thing it's like the fusing of the uh the national question of the liberation of the whole people mm-hmm. with the the communist horizon of the proletariat as the vanguard of the oppressed you know and the two different visions of the whole people being sort of united in a in a single common vision rather than what i think was the dominant and more prevalent schema of social transformation in the communist movement, which is, you know, the bourgeois democratic phase of national liberation, and then some secondary phase of proletarian struggle against capital, you know, Mm -hmm. when the first one is completed. In the Yugoslav, the first and founding singularity of the Yugoslav experience, as presented here, is the reassertion of, dare we say, permanent revolution. Oh, yeah. We do dare say. I do. I do. We do dare say it. Uh oh. <laughs> I, I think on that note, um, a couple of other things in my notes I wanted to touch on. I also thought that 
Savine has this really interesting thing where he says that there are a handful of key questions that he wants to explore. And basically he says, how did the communist revolution, the socialist revolution in Yugoslavia, how did it start so well and end so badly? So I think that's going to be a driving thing is to figure out what exactly happened. And I know we mentioned this as a relationship to the role of the party, um, you know, in the transition from a militarist struggle but he basically says that how does it, it's an excellent form in the conditions of, of warfare and military struggle, but it becomes a purely degenerative and regressive force after that, whenever it needs to transition. And we actually talked about this a lot in our episode on Vietnam. I don't know if y'all have listened to that one, but this was a similar challenge in the role of the Communist Party of Vietnam, how during this military struggle guerrilla warfare, it's an excellent, excellent tool. And they also degenerated and kind of fell prey to very similar things of like global capitalist forces and financial capitalism after the successful guerrilla war as well. And I think this is sort of probably a very common refrain from both of our shows. But at the end of this, Savine is basically saying what in the Marxian and then Leninist tradition itself needs to be changed to account for the defeat and deviation. And so that's what I really love about this is that you know, all these questions and all this history is posed to then basically say, we need to revise to make sense of the defeat and deviations, which if I had to guess, we're all of the opinion that not very many people take the time and, um, you know, have the the courage to do such a thing. Oh, you mean be revisionists? (laughs) Yeah. Hell yeah. Real revisionist hours. Yeah. Library and regrettable century. (laughs) Quick summary Um, uh, of the problem is making necessity into virtue in creating the monolithic one party state. Well, I watched, oh, what's the third worldist guy who wears a suit and has a mohawk? Oh, uh, Jason Unruh. Yeah, I watched uh, one of his videos about Yugoslavia. And what I learned from that video was that the problem was petty bourgeois syndicalism. Because oh, oh yeah. the, the idea that the workers own the means of production means that the whole people doesn't don't own the means of production. And that's how you can account for, you know, the genocide in the 90s. Uh-huh. Oh, God, that is such. A, so, OK, I can see how you can, <laughs> I could see how you can bastardize the facts of the reality of the problem of decentralization to which was pushed by the IMF and the World Bank, which mm-hmm. uh, Yugoslavia was dependent on because of its alienation from the USSR. And you, you could bastardize those facts and talk about, well, it was self-rule, uh, the independent workplace that was the cause of it. But that is such an, a, a fucking farce of a fake criticism that, that it's it's classic, you know, walking the cat backwards. Like, you know, you, you arrive at what you decide is going to be the problem and then uh, and then you try to walk the cat backwards from there and say that uh, therefore like this is the thing that caused it you can walk it backwards in any direction and and say that you know this is the the thing that caused it to be the problematic outcome propaganda dare i say (laughs) comrade jason if you're listening it's much more interesting and complex than that (laughs) (laughs) oh you know he listens to our podcast oh yeah i'm sure yeah i mean so suvine even kind of makes an, an argument in that direction in a sense, but that's the uh, Marxist third worldist guy. His take is basically to take is to obliterate all of the analytical power of that proposition and basically render it useless. And I also think there's a certain way that those particular kinds of pronouncements are, to me, it, they obscure precisely the dialectical approach that, that Suvin is using. Even whenever he does gesture in that direction, it isn't to offer some almost kind of moral denouncement. Because I think that right. one of the things we don't talk about very much is that a lot of those kinds of things that MLMs and, and others kind of say, it's like they're, they're not historical analytical judgments. They're moral judgments couched in the language of historical materialism, which I think is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, 
very destructive and, and dangerous. And fortunately, I think it, it's, it's hard to pick apart that those are different kinds of judgments to make, I think. I held it up as a make a goof. But it is actually not like a unique position that he has. It is mm-hmm. kind of the the pro-Stalin line on Yugoslavia. To even in the Khrushchev period, they they kind of denounced the the Yugoslavs as essentially syndicalists, which is like people who are drifting oh. away from the Marxist notion of the state. Yeah, um, which they call is, them which, corporatists as well. They said, yeah. you know, one step removed from fascism, they're corporatists essentially. You know, right? And to me, that's like probably mostly just bullshit emotional posturing, <laughs> but. <laughs> But I think it is actually probably rooted in a real political difference mm-hmm. in w- what we understand the project of the of construction actually being. Like, is the withering of the state something that happens one day? Or is it a thing that begins as a constituent element of the construction of the new society? Because, you know, for somebody like Edvard Cardella, his, his mm-hmm. kind of theory of associated labor, labor is very much that, like, we immediately embarking upon the process of trying to become more and more fit to rule. That the whole the whole point of socialism, the whole point of trying to move, the, the only way to do it is to, like, that the power flows ever more from the population rather than from the state. I think it's a good faith effort that they make. And I, and I like the way that Suvin puts it. When he says it refers to the partisan system uh, as self-management in war, or rather the self-management in peacetime, or that self-management was the partisan system in peacetime, like that it very much flew from their understanding of their own role Mm -hmm. as being like, not to take and wield power, but to take and share power. He also has this really fascinating idea to me about maybe how we're going to discuss this sort of fusion of the democratic horizon and the communist horizon, let's say. But he also uh, had this really great point where he says that for him, I think the main contradiction in in the social life of the SFRI, um, which I don't know if if we said this, but it's the Socialist Federation of... Socialist uh, Federated Republic of uh, Yugoslavia. Brilliant. He basically says that the the main contradiction in social life is between revolutionary disalienation of humanity and the continuation slash rebirth of alienation linked by an oligarchic state in full flower, which in Yugoslavia he sees kind of in full effect by the 1970s. So to me, I thought that was one of the really fascinating things is you have this really concrete material history, but also like he's tracking the way that this struggle between alienation and disalienation is continuing to happen. And maybe, you know, that's that's something that was kind of there from the beginning, and it gives Yugoslavia a very interesting trajectory to follow precisely because of their grounding in the partisan struggle about how they had to self-manage and what did that look like and carrying that through as a way to share power, I think is is one of the more fascinating things of the whole situation. I like that learning about Boris Kidrich, who is the chief theorist behind the Yugoslav uh, system. Whenever Suvin talks about him, he goes back to Marx and he goes back to Lenin for his inspiration. And he, uh, he quotes Lenin, and I'm going to read this whole quote real quick so we can just sort of put the cherry on top of the um, criticisms of Yugoslavia. Lenin says that the social state can arise only as a network of producers and consumers' communes which conscientiously keep account of their production and consumption, economize on labor, and steadily raise the productivity of labor, making it possible to reduce the working day to six, seven, and even fewer hours. And then he says that every factory, every village has the duty to apply the Soviet laws in their own way. So Lenin is here calling for in the um, the immediate tasks of the Soviet government for decentralization Mm -hmm. and worker self-management. And Boris Kidrich refers specifically to Marx in the, uh, the Civil War in France when talking about the Paris Commune and to Lenin and the state and revolution and the immediate tasks of the Soviet government. 
in coming up with his idea for a system of decentralized workers' councils that help govern on the lower levels and decide what is going to be produced and feed that information back into the centralized planning that exists at the top. So talk about fucking syndicalism. I was going to say Lenin, that famous corporatist. <laughs> yeah, Lenin, that famous anarcho-syndicalist. Yeah. I don't know if I like uh, jumped out of order there, but I, I thought that was a good response to I think uh, it, Mr. Unruh. I think it's a great one. Comrade, Mr. Unruh has been fucking owned by Fats and Logic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know it was by his logic though it was by his own logic yeah <laughs> a truly a truly dialectical approach it is an internal critique you use someone's own logic against them Lenin said it then that that's means holy it's true. red it's red words dog yeah. that's the red that's words right. <laughs> the only sort of like lingering note that i have from that section it's from suvin's he calls it a useful division of SFRY history. It's, and it's from like 1945 to 1965 or the 20 glorious years mm-hmm. of like under, underground struggle into open partisan warfare to the liberation and seizure of power. And the first, I mean, almost 20 years of state construction and of a civic development in terms of like a theory and practice of how to be socialist in Yugoslavia. And the dividing year is 1965 from 65 to 89 which is technically longer but he calls it the 20 inglorious years Mm -hmm. i know we get into it at at later points i think throughout the discussion of the book but i think it's useful that I, i think it's important that he signifies early on that he thinks that there is a sharp break kind of a ruptural moment between the advance of the communist project and then the receding of the communist project. So he he seems to think of it in terms of relatively identifiable phases. I also think one interesting thing, too, about that first uh, glorious 20 years is whenever Yugoslavia, again, post-World War II, I think it's important to state it wasn't necessarily a, a, an economic system of workers' councils right away. They did try to utilize right. and implement a Soviet-style model, like a very command economy type of model. And workers' councils and the shift to more of this plebeian democratic horizon, let's say, was done as a response to the the failures and the sort of exhaustion or degradation of this command Soviet-style economy. So to me, that's just an important piece too. It isn't as if they had their unique trajectory right away. I mean, they did try to model right. what they were doing on the Soviet system, and their approach that was seen as really revolutionary and, and how Savine talks about it was a response to a breakdown of that. He said that there were two ways to carry out primitive accumulation necessary to build up industry to skip the capitalist phase, right? Quote, unquote. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was the at the point of the gun, the way that, the, that Stalin extracted surplus value, and through workers' self-management, through workers' self-management, which would mm-hmm. allow for quotas to be set and met, and give people a stake in uh, what they were producing, that turns out to have been very successful. Turns out you didn't have to force industrialization at the barrel of a gun, and I think that is incredibly interesting and worth thinking about. Mm-hmm. So I actually think that that might even be the bridge into chapter two. In chapter two, he does talk about what he calls the plunder of the Yugoslav peasantry mm-hmm. and kind of a zigzagging road to socialist democracy. And I think like he identifies the empowerment of working people as a break to further accumulation on that trajectory. Like Adam, the way that you put it is like that the inherited St- Stalin era developmental model starts to break down, mm-hmm. but he identifies its its origins uh, in the breakdown as being the capacity of the working population to put up barriers to it from the beginning so that they try it and they get as far as they can go. 
and then it no longer works. You know, not because they run out of resources, not because they foreign markets dry up or whatever, not even because they can't get IMF loans because they get IMF loans mm-hmm. and then they just don't pay them. In fact, they don't start paying until the 80s. And that's when you really see the breakdown of society. <laughs> but it's because at a certain point, there's a section of the population which already regards itself as emancipated. Yeah. And because the war was a partisan war of, a, of, you know, instead of the way the Russian Civil War played out, the police apparatus wasn't capable of exerting the kind of pressure that would have been necessary to do a, you know, 1930s style command at the point of a gun accumulation of, of capital. Yeah, there's an interesting historical note that he offers too that the the relationship between the police and the state wasn't completely fused the way it was in Soviet Russia. And that sort of slight autonomy, I think, was a check on the ability of the mm-hmm. state to use the police precisely to engage in, you know, mass purges or anything like that. Really quick, I just want to touch on one note since we're talking a little bit about primitive accumulation. So Savine has this really fascinating thing where he says that primitive accumulation typically comes from three various sources. And, you know, the idea is is that to sort of jumpstart industrialization, you need to engage in primitive accumulation in some sort of way. So he basically says that one can be exploitation of working people, two is exploitation of other countries, i.e. imperialism, or the third is foreign loans. And he basically says that socialism historically doesn't usually have access to the imperial means of primitive accumulation. What Yugoslavia will have access to, like we said, they do engage in some sort of attempt to exploit the working people, but then eventually have to rely on IMF loans, which were freely granted to them because the Western capitalist powers saw Yugoslavia as a check and a sort of strategic alliance against Soviet Russia during the Cold War. Right, like lest we be too romantic Mm -hmm. about the independent course, the, the the parameters of that are important to like remember. Some of these early experiments didn't have to be quite NEP style and they didn't have to quite be forced collectivization either. And part of that is the availability of liquid foreign capital mm-hmm. that, to be fair, was available for a period in Soviet history as well, but not, but not nearly on the same scale. And the, all the conditions are different anyways by the time. This is uh, I might have my history wrong. Is this post Bretton Woods or uh, is it pre Bretton Woods? So Bretton Woods is, I want to say, fifty four. It's it's around that time. Yeah, it's in the same you know general trajectory. I think for sure. I just think it's different than the Anglo Soviet trade agreement in the early twenties, which is like bilateral relations between two states. Here it's IMF loans, mm-hmm. you know, which again like is one of those contradictory elements that that sows one, some of the seeds of the undoing of the project later, even yeah. as it also provides a lot of the impetus for its kind of initial leaps forward. I wanted to ask y'all, there was an interesting historical, I guess, like echo or like antecedent <coughs> that Savine talks about, and it's the debate between Bukharin and Priobozhinsky in the 1920s. Do y'all remember this part? Just a little. I feel like y'all have way more grounding in these sorts of historical debates than I do, but I wanted to get your thoughts on this because Suveen basically says that in this debate, it's a debate over sort of the the way that the economy is going to develop and industrialize. And so he basically says that the, basically the opposing arguments were that Priobozhinsky he basically opted for heavy industry over light in- industry and consumption and really opted for producer goods over consumer goods and mm-hmm. and basically, you know, for primitive accumulation from the peasants. And basically, this is the position that Stalin adopted. And then the, the contra argument from Bukharin is basically, you know, warning against stagnant monopolism and the destruction of a worker peasant alliance. So I, I thought that was really interesting to sort of bring that in. And it seems that Suvine is basically trying to reference that debate as a similar sort of uh, debate that Yugoslavia was grappling with, and maybe that they 
sort of took the spirit of Bukharin's argument as, you know, right. a way out of the Stalinist sort of approach in 1949. Right, like when I was reading about Stalin referring to Tito as a Trotskyist, and mm-hmm. I was like, no, it, Tito is, this appears to be more of a Bukharinist. Mm. I mean, that's the one note I wrote about the same thing as Yugoslav developmentalism as Bukharin's thinking. Aren't you? That's, doing... that's the whole note. <laughs> Aren't you that's doing it. an episode on Bukharin soon? I feel like I might just be like totally you know, spoiling and revealing classified information, but... No, no. Um, so we were talking about doing an episode on the Ernst Mandel book that you were... That Jason and I had been talking about doing, like, intro episodes. Mm-hmm. But then I said, well, maybe we'll do another basic text. Maybe we can do, like, the ABC of Communism by Bukharin or something. Mm. Yeah, it's I, less, like, about Bukharin. Just on Bukharin's book. Incidentally, Bukharin, as a, as a political thinker, is, should be on our list somewhere to grapple with more because yeah. there definitely is a notion... Uh, a popular idea that like the Chinese strategy of development in the post-Cold War era has been basically trying to take its cues from Bukharin. Mm. And I'm not really sure if I see that as entirely right, or, le- or maybe you could say that that would be like Bukharin's strategy if it didn't have like a defined endpoint or something. Like Bukharin is, is a relevant political figure in communism today, Yeah, much more than just historical interest. So one of my notes that I have here was after 1949, the radical and libertarian impulse of Leninism was promoted and the, when they were faced with the choice of either standard of living increases or police repression. They opted for standard of living increases. Mm-hmm. All right. Is there anything else in chapter two you all want to touch on? I feel like we've covered the sort of the break with the Soviet model, talked a little bit about the role of World Bank and IMF loans. He brings up as early as chapter two the political consequences of decentralization, mm. allowing regional governments to block national initiatives, um, sort of adopting a state's rights approach to the five-year plans. He doesn't get into a a lot of detail about it in the second chapter, but he identifies that as like, you know, that's like a harbinger of of things to come. He does some foreshadowing, but that's really, I think, as much as it it gets into it there. One thing I want to ask y'all before we maybe move on, since this is coming up, I am curious about our discussion around national and ethnic identity as not maybe an inherently reactionary sort of approach to more radical left-wing project. But just uh, to me, I think that's another big question that we have to come away with here. It's not just the question of the party and transition, but also of the relationship between regional autonomy and the relationship between national and ethnic identity with this overarching, you know, socialist communist project. So I don't know if that's that's something that we want to talk a little bit we, about now or, or hold off. Yeah, yeah. But, let's let's yeah. just solve the national question real quick before we move on. Oh, okay, cool. Though that's why I brought it up. Yeah, <laughs> this, is, this should be no problem. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that one of the things that he doesn't talk about it in explicitly in these terms, but he does say, and we'll get to this later, that the degeneration into nationalism as opposed to just regional identity is preceded by the empowerment of local party bosses mm-hmm. and the regional banks yep. that happened in the last mm-hmm. phase of last phase of degeneration and that those were the negative elements that were thrown into the mix that led to the virulent and violent nationalisms that emerged from the collapse of the uh, Yugoslav state and that it didn't have to ever get to that point and he, I think he alludes to that many times throughout the book that it's, this was never an inevitability. Mm-hmm. And that right. um, and he, okay. even decentralization wasn't in and of itself bad. And he points to his virtues many times before he points to decentralization plus capitalism plus 
the authoritarian drift being the things that led to the violent nationalism. Yeah. The only thing I would add to that is that he, he identifies a stop it, a kind of a stoppage at the most important level of decentralization, which is at the level of like workers control. And he, he I think he sort of identifies uh, regional political autonomy as being like a kind of a sop, like a, in, in place of greater and greater degrees of like self-actualization on the part of the working population. It's the combination of availability of consumer goods to placate, you know, the, the masses and then more and more decentralization of power to the regions as a way of kind of trying to straddle, trying to hold on to the allegiances of local party bosses. And that, that, that thing together, that those two phenomena together are would account for the kind of authoritarian drift on the part of the local party bosses. And so, you know, when the project of disalienation doesn't continually advance, that it's the the reassertion of regional identity on the basis of ethnic identity that is the, the tool of local party bosses. I don't know, maybe I'm just reading my own perspective into the way he writes it. But I, I sort of think of decentralization, meaning liberalization, as an inherent problem. That it maybe doesn't necessarily lead in the direction that it does, but it pretty strongly tends in that direction from the beginning. I actually think this is a really good bridge into chapter three. Y'all mind if we move into that? I wanted to make one comment yeah, before we did. It. And that was just on the nature of pan-Slavism. So that Yugoslavia really is the realization of the 19th century concept of pan-Slavism, where the Slavic countries were all small populations and they're all disunited and we're never going to be able to compete with the larger powers such as, you know, Germany or France or the Ottomans or whatever. So there was the idea of pan-Slavism, like they're all a core group of people that's, that had spoken the same language that were just divided by history and they wanted to reunite. So Yugoslavia was the realization of the pan-Slavic idea. And they even took the pan-Slavic anthem, the Hey Slovene, as their anthem. And it was an idea that they said could only be realized under socialism because capitalism didn't allow for the unification of disparate peoples and that it was their like identity as Slavs and as socialists united under the Federation of Yugoslavia that allowed for pan-Slavism to work. And I think that there might have been something to that when you look at what happened once you took the socialist element away. Yeah, no, I mean, that was, yeah, very well said. I'm glad you got to throw that in. I think on this note, the start of chapter three, if we go back to one of the initial starting questions for the book is, you know, how did things start so well and end so badly? I think this is the first time that Suvin's main hypothesis of what happened shows up. And the summary of this that I have is basically that the collapse of the SFRY was due to a, the rise of a ruling class which, which eventually fractured and the decisive ones decided their interests were better served by fracturing the state, the larger federal system, and basically constituting themselves as these neo-comprador classes based on these uh, specific regions themselves. So to me, I thought that was actually a really just straightforward way to talk about, you know, for him, like what did happen, kind of tying together some of these threads. And this might be a little bit later, but I also thought it was really important that Suvin takes on some of these other explanations, that it was the rise of a technocracy, let's say, or it was the solidification of a bureaucratic layer that sort of served its own interests. He seems to say that, well, those aren't fully explaining the actual complexities of the situation. And he also introduces the idea of, do y'all remember this? He calls it like the politocracy. The politocracy, yeah. And so I guess we'll get into that. But to me, that's also a related thing that we're going to come back to over and over again in this discussion is how you can't just explain this away with like, yeah, the rise of some sort of like technocratic class. And it's not just a bureaucracy. It's something else very specifically related to the party. I'm dropping my mic. That was it. 
my mic yeah. just dropped. <laughs> he does identify it as the primary cause, mm-hmm. the primary of the cause, eventual yeah. breakup. Of, uh, and he, I don't think he takes a simplistic view of this at all either. I mean, he he makes it a point to define class as a as a matter of shared objective interest. You know, based on identified needs, he spends time going into uh, the flexible ways in which flexible ways in which the various connections by Marx and Engels, the way that they use class, and he talks about class consciousness as as, as a as a, f- a thing that kind of grows out of that kind of objective experience of class. Again, it's not like a singular moment where like, oh, look, we're actually a ruling class, mm-hmm. but that there's a slow drift in the direction of a of a series of recognitions of shared interests that give rise to the. The, to the eventual self-conception of the various ruling bureaucracies as having separate interests from the class, yeah, uh, think- from the other classes. Maybe most importantly, he says that you can't talk about classes as anything other than a relational phenomenon, right? So there is mm-hmm. no ruling class without a proletariat. And the Yugoslav society never conceived of itself as having moved beyond class distinctions, right? They had really explicit class distinctions in terms of employees as separate from workers, right? So that's like state and non-state workers and peasants and workers and so on. That's just to say that like the theoretical possibility of a ruling class is implicitly recognized in a society which has a class stratification, even if it's only between peasants and workers. I thought he also did a really good job of trying to synthesize different approaches to how you define stratification within society, where he basically says that class interest can be economic, so a la Marx and Engels, but he also includes status and security. So that's more of like Max Weber's definition, which, you know, sometimes I think can be seen as separate, which I don't really agree with that. But I think that's what's kind of useful here is to say that, well, whatever this ruling class was, it isn't just an economic interest. It's also the relationship of these other things that would cause one to see you as having a shared interest with these other people within your particular social strata, whatever that might be. I, I wanted to also say that he has this line where he basically says that class society is the primary cause of psychosocial destruction and existential threat to humanity as a whole, which I just thought was a very <laughs> beautiful and uh, poignant way to describe it. Mm-hmm. 